Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I grew up on the East Coast, and as a pretty devoted sports fan, mostly New York teams, as a lot of you know, but I don't know how many of you know that I grew up in Connecticut, a Lakers fan. Showtime, Kareem, and Magic, decades before I'd ever even been to LA, let alone considered living here. Mostly, it was an anti-Boston thing. <laughs> Connecticut is split in half when it comes to rooting. From the middle of the state and north, Boston and their teams pull strongly. And from the middle south, particularly when you're the child of two New Yorkers, it's pinstripes and Yankees. And as a good Yankees fan, I learned to loathe all sports things and teams from Boston including the Celtics. So if you loathe the Celtics and you have no one else to root for because nobody rooted for the Knicks in Connecticut in the late 70s, I don't even think we'd heard of them, you root for the Lakers. I'm a sports fan who tries to be simultaneously reflective and rabid. I follow my teams and they mean a lot to me. And I try to follow careful thinking and know that ultimately, they don't really mean much of anything. When you root for a team or a player, you're rooting for laundry. You are devoting loyally to a system that eschews loyalty, scoffs at it. If your favorite player starts wearing the enemy's uniform, he or she is instantly an enemy. You're loyal to a logo an owner. You're living out fantasy and success through other people who don't know you and don't really care about you, except that you buy the tickets that pay their salaries. But still you care, knowing that there really isn't a great reason to care. This is all by way of saying that when Kobe Bryant was killed in the tragic helicopter accident on Sunday, I felt at first I felt it as a fan. I was one of those millions of fans for whom Kobe Bryant, because of his career, bouncing a ball in a Laker uniform, was a bit larger than life. To paraphrase my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Aaron Brusso, who's a lifelong and diehard Chicago Bulls fan, but who can recognize grace and excellence, on the court, Kobe broke the laws of gravity. And as many celebrities do, he seemed to break the laws of nature around limitations. So seeing him die just after his prime of play, but still in the prime of his life, is a shocking reminder of how the rules that we thought don't apply to stars, aging and mortality and gravity, absolutely do. And the moments that they allowed us to escape our own limitations and dream of unencumbered lives are immediately exposed for what they were, fleeting and momentary. Now, as the immediacy of the tragedy subsided for me, even though it still grips the city and occupies the front page of the Los Angeles Times every day since, two notions swirled for me. 
and their notions neither comfortable to think nor easy to express. I hope I express them with proper respect. The first is that the city and the sports world and ESPN were focusing on the tragic death of an all-star, an icon, a Hall of Famer to be. And yet I think if we're really still focusing on it, we should be focusing on the tragic death of a father and a daughter, several fathers and several daughters, not all of them named Kobe or Gianna. All of them should be at peace and of blessed memory. And all of them, save one or two, seem to get token or belated compensatory attention. People die every day of natural deaths, of murders, accidents, and tragedies. And it's odd to think which deaths capture our attention longer and more intensely, and why. When statesmen die, their deaths have us review their legacies and accomplishments. When great thinkers die, their deaths have us consider the impact their thought had on civilization. When basketball stars die, their deaths have us think of of what and why and for how long. I utter these words with reverence for the recently departed and with curiosity, just curiosity, about aspects of our celebrity culture. Some of the lingering is lovely and can be productive. On a small but sweet level, our pressman students practiced dribbling and worked on skills this week in Kobe's memory. And on a grander level, because of the infamy of one of the people who died in that helicopter, some appropriate and perhaps belated attention is being put towards technology that was not in that helicopter, but which could have been. And had it been, it might, might have saved lives. So because these tragic deaths included one who does capture our attention, it may be that future deaths are averted, and that would be a wonderful light to emerge from this darkness, and it would be emerging specifically because Kobe was famous, because Kobe was Kobe. And the second notion relates to hagiography and our need and our instinct to lionize our heroes and to ascribe to them goodness that may or may not have emerged from their greatness. And I say this too with proper reverence for the deceased, and also with some discomfort with the partial whitewashing, the near deification upon death of a hero who was quite human and flawed in life. In the rush and crush to respond to the shocking news, deference and respect to the dead intermingled with some potential lack of respect to some who are still living. And the attempts to honor this man ended up doing a little bit of disservice to honesty regarding this man. Now, given the setting and the ages of those in the room, I won't go into details here, but many of us know that there was a dark spot on Kobe's blazing light. And there remains a victim, still very much in pain, who probably had to wonder, as Kobe the player in life became rather quickly Kobe the saint in death. What's the Jewish view of all this? 
because after all, I'm a rabbi, not a social critic at the core. One nugget of Jewish wisdom supports the focus and even the overfocus on Kobe's inspiring and admirable qualities, and there were many. There's a rabbinic tradition that has us read the rather arbitrary back-to-back -back names of two parashot in Vayikra, Leviticus, as if the doublet of names contains a sermon. The first is Acharemot, literally after the death, because that parsha begins with the immediate aftermath of the deaths of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu. And the next parsha is Kedoshim, named for the opening line in which God calls all of us to be holy and distinct and separate Kedoshim. And God lays out a series of laws that are meant to bring us to that sanctified place. The two names of two consecutive parashot are sometimes read as a double and a double parsha, and the rabbis take on it, make it into a sentence. Acharemot, comma, Kedoshim. After death, holiness. When someone dies, focused on what is most holy. That's kvot hamet, that is honor to the deceased. That's what the family deserves too, particularly in the immediate aftermath. And on the other hand, Talmudic texts and codified law ask us to be decidedly unromantic and I think exquisitely honest when it comes to the art of a eulogy, a hesped in Hebrew. In our tradition, eulogies are prepared and shared quickly, often within two days of death, and in Israel, within a few hours. In short order, after a death, one is asked to encapsulate the story, meaning, and impact of a life. And few lives are lived without complications and family dramas and terrible disappointments and small sins and great crimes and everything in between. One of the hardest eulogies I ever wrote was for someone who was very, very troubled. This person was belligerent and at times came off as dangerous. I felt it personally. So much so that we decided the person was not safe to have on campus. And then this person's relative joined the synagogue and they were estranged from one another. Soon after, the person we had essentially barred from campus passed away. And the closest living relative was now a member of our synagogue. And estranged as they were, the living relative asked me to officiate as the current rabbi to the relative and the former rabbi of the deceased. At the funeral would be friends and acquaintances of the deceased who would rightly expect kind words and appropriate encomiums, an honorable tribute to a life both troubled but worthy and treasured. And at the funeral would also be friends and acquaintances of the living relative who was both a mourner and one who had been profoundly mistreated harshly by the deceased. These people would expect honesty and some clarity so that the person described would match the person they knew. They would expect some comfort on the end of a life that had been painful to be around. And all of this in about 14 minutes. I remember the second book of Shmuel, Samuel chapter 21, when the Jewish people were punished with famine for not eulogizing King Saul, not a perfect man, with sufficient respect and praise. 
And I remember Talmudic sources which discussed the profession of professional eulogizers. People paid to praise the lives of even those who didn't live that well, compensated for excessive wailing and keening. There's tremendous weight in our tradition given to Kvod Hamet, honor to the deceased. The Shulchan Aruch, the 16th century authoritative code of Jewish law, obligates a eulogizer to avoid lying, but also encourages some enhancement of the deceased's positive attributes. And later commentaries, including the Bach and the Taz, gave reason for that acceptable exaggeration. Only God knows the truest truth of a person's life. So it is better to slightly overestimate the positive sides of the deceased rather than underestimate them. Some of the pe people, person's best qualities, most pious actions, they might have been concealed, known by no one. So judge favorably, particularly at death. It's a kindness to the deceased and to their grief-stricken mourners. And yet, and yet, some errors, some sins, some crimes ought not be forgotten or washed over, even at death. And knowing what to say and what not to say and when is more art than science, I hope I achieved the proper balance back then, and I wonder about it now. When a shining star was taken from us so quickly, and when that star was blemished, and when our tradition believes that all of the lives of those on that helicopter were of infinite and therefore equal value. Our era demands immediate reactions to all things. And in the moment, complexities can get flattened. Jewish perspective is more patient and wider, even as we compose our eulogies so quickly after death. Some of that perspective is drilled home by the primary mitzvah of Parshat Bo, which we read this morning. Amidst the drama and the trauma of the last plagues and the thrill of Exodus itself and the end of slavery, there's a serious and enduring law given by God to the Israelites, which still governs our lives and our time today. On the precipice of freedom for the enslaved, the Torah devotes nearly an entire chapter to the concept of time itself. This month will be for you the first of months. You newly freed slaves will mark time differently than those around you. You will move from the adoration of the sun to emulation of the moon. You will shift from an unchanging, blazing ball of light to a waxing and waning secondary illumination, sometimes full, sometimes invisible. And this is form-matching content because the law marking time by something that itself changes over time, the moon, and which invites you to consider reality from different angles, different perspectives, beyond the instantaneous burst, beyond the relentless constancy of the sun, the law is itself given as a way to slow down and refract time, to take a break from the immediacy and the apparent obviousness of the moment. They're in the middle of the drama, Exodus is happening. Freedom is beckoning. All is clear and all is perfect. The headlines are obvious. 
And suddenly, the Torah lifts us, the characters and the readers, on eagle's wings and moves us towards the long view, asks us to lean into a calendar that will endure and outlast us all. This mitzvah brings us from momentary time to epic time. It connects the actual night of Exodus to Pesach seders across the eras during which we will think about the Exodus and continue to ask what it meant and accept that there will be more than one story to tell about that fateful night. Eulogies are written soon, and headlines and news articles are sometimes written too soon. History happens at a slower pace, sometimes more forgiving, sometimes less so. And I know, and I feel, that for many Lakers fans, any word that would take away from Kobe's legacy would be too soon and inappropriate. Celebrities are the characters in our mythologies, a version of British royalty only more perfect, like the Greeks and their gods. We identify with them. We need them as heroes, as escapes. And yet seeing heroes without seeing and noting their imperfections leaves good people wounded and sets dangerous traps as we try to raise up reasonable and legitimate role models for the next generation. So I think that our aspiration, even in the moment, is to look at life and at people with the perspective that emerges from that section, hachodesh, hazet, lachem. What legacy will be left? What lessons ought we learn? How do we mourn and how do we honor with honesty? May the memories of all nine victims be for a blessing. May all their families find comfort. And if it seems that the suns of our world seem just too blazing hot, let us also search after the moons. Shabbat shalom.